So how long would it take to walk six miles? If you're in pretty good shape, a couple hours. One of the most important events in all of human history took place just six miles from Jerusalem in a little town called, help me out, Bethlehem. Now granted, 2,000 years ago, Bethlehem wasn't much. It was the permanent home of about 200 residents. That's a pretty small town. But because it was so close to the suburb of Jerusalem, um, various inns, various hotels were there because so many Jewish pilgrims uh, would make their way to Jerusalem for Passover and they would have a spillover into these areas. But this time, the hotels and the inns were full to capacity for another reason. We read the account in Luke chapter 2. The Roman emperor, Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, who was now expecting a child, and while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. So keep in mind, they were six miles away from Jerusalem. Joseph, Mary, Jesus were only six miles away from Jerusalem. And so in this, against this backdrop, we read that Matthew 2 says about that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, many traditions about the wise men have found their way into popular belief. And let me just ask you a couple of questions. For instance, how many wise men were there? Three, at least that's what we think, okay? But in actuality, there were probably more. There's no number mentioned in history as to how many wise men there were. We base the three number on how many gifts that were given. And in fact, I remember hearing a preschooler one time say that, that gold, Frankenstein, and Smurfs were given to baby Jesus, right? And we know that there were three gifts that were given, and so... Um, we kind of assume that there were three people, but there possibly was more. We know that they, we think that they were kings from the east that have come. But in actuality, many scholars believe they were king makers. See, throughout history, and I'll just give you a little history 101 lesson if you don't mind. I don't know if history was your favorite subject in school or not, but it was mine. And, and so history 101, kind of the, the world um, uh, empires, the, the, the empires of the globe, uh, were four major uh, world empires. The Babylonian Empire uh, basically was settled in the Fertile Crescent area um, in the valley of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Um, the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the second great world empire. Does anybody know who that was? That was the Medo-Persian Empire. Yeah, Medo-Persians. And um, that was made up of the Persians and the Medes. All right, that's pretty easy to understand. Under the leadership of Alexander the Great, the Medo-Persian Empire was conquered. Um, and Greece became the third great world empire. And then lastly, conquering the rest of them uh, was the Roman Empire. And so if we back up in history just a little bit, the people group of the Medes were actually in existence while the Babylonian Empire was ruling the world. 
And there are many historical writings you can find. Just Google it. It's really easy to find. You can trace the origin of the Mede people all the way back to the time of Abraham, actually around 1900 BC. So it's crazy to think that there's a people group like the Medes who span that amount of time, over 2,000 years of time, from Abraham all the way to Jesus. That's how long that people group was around. Most researchers believe that the wise men were a priestly tribe from the people group of the Medes. They were skilled in astronomy and astrology. They were interested in the meaning of the, the movements of the stars and the planets. They were highly respected, very influential, and very wealthy people. Because of their wisdom and their knowledge and their intuition on things, they rose to places of prominence in governments. They served in king's palaces. And history tells us that the wise men became the most prominent and powerful group of advisors in the Medo-Persian Empire. In fact, no Persian was able to assume, uh, ascend rather, to the throne, to become king without being approved and crowned by the wise men. They were the kingmakers of the world. No one ruled without their endorsement. So how does this apply to Matthew 2, our narrative there? Well, historians connect the wise men in a really interesting way through a guy by the name of Daniel around 600 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, who was king of the Babylonian Empire, conquered much of the known world at the time, and including the Jew Jewish nation of Judah in 587 BC. And Nebuchadnezzar took many people from Judah into captivity, and soon the wise men encountered a specific man named Daniel as a part of those captives. And interesting, Daniel was so skilled and so knowledgeable and so amazing that he was elevated into serving in the king's palace. In fact, we're told that Daniel was elevated to the leader of the group of wise men under Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. In fact, Daniel 2, I think I've got it on the little outline that you have inside your brochure. Um, we read that one night Nebuchadnezzar had a disturbing dream. He couldn't, he couldn't sleep. He had this, this nightmarish kind of dream. And so he calls his wise men in and he goes, I want you to interpret the dream, but I don't want you to just interpret it. I want you to tell me the dream first and then interpret it. Well, none of them could do it. And so he said, that's fine. You're just all going to die today. I mean, that's kind of the way that Nebuchadnezzar rolled. And so everybody's freaking out. The wise men are freaking out. We're all going to die. And Daniel was one of the wise men. And Daniel went to King Nebuchadnezzar. And he said, wait, listen, can you just give us 24 hours? And we'll have the interpretation for you. And Nebuchadnezzar says, okay. So they sleep on it. And that night, Daniel 2.19, that night the secret was revealed to Daniel. God revealed this to Daniel in a vision. And then Daniel the next day tells the king his dream and his interpretation. And then it says in 48, the king made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon. He goes, man, if you're that good, you need to be my guy. You need to be my second. And so he made him not only over the whole province, he made him chief over the wise men. He made him the leader over all the wise men. Don't miss that. Because see, Daniel was a guy who followed God. He was not only Jewish, but he followed God, wholeheartedly followed God. And so this position gave him an opportunity to tell people, other people, about his God and about God's people. And I think this is how the group of wise men in Matthew 2 became so familiar with Jewish history. 
This information had been passed throughout generation after generation of wise men until this group of wise men in Matthew 2 got a hold of this. I think they were reading some of Daniel's ancient writings. Maybe, get this, maybe where Daniel wrote, predicted that exactly 483 years would pass from the time that King Cyrus would decree to rebuild Jerusalem until the birth of the Messiah. Maybe they read that prediction from Daniel and they said, hmm, 483 years, let's do the math. Let's begin to count the years. And possibly they counted the years where the king of Persia had decreed this. And now they knew the when, but they didn't know the where. And so God miraculously, supernaturally, provides GPS, a star. They're astrologers, they're astronomers. They're looking to the heavens and all of a sudden they see this star that is acting weird. It's, it's not doing what it's supposed to do. Maybe this is our sign. And so they, they follow it and they go to Jerusalem. And when they come to Jerusalem, remember the question they asked in Jerusalem, where is this king? Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. They knew the when, they didn't know the where. King Herod, verse 3, was deeply disturbed by this when he heard it, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Well, who was Herod? Herod was a guy who was appointed kind of like a governor, king uh, of the Jews by the Roman Senate to kind of handle the Jews in that area. He had done so for almost 40 years, but you need to know that Herod was not a nice guy. He was compared to Nero. He was very jealous, very power-hungry, very power-driven, uncontrollable suspicion regarding everyone. In fact, Herod even had his own wife and her brothers killed because he suspected them of treason. He was not a good guy. Anything he needed to do, he would do to hold on to his throne. So these Persian kingmakers appear in Jerusalem. And the text tells us that he called a meeting, Herod, called a meeting with the leading priests and teachers of religious law. And he said, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? These guys are saying they've got the time, the when, but we need to know the where. And look what these religious leaders say. They say, in Bethlehem, in Judea. For this is what the prophet wrote, O you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people. And this is where one question bothers me. They knew the where, but why didn't they go to see Jesus themselves? I mean, it was the hope of every Jew in that time that the Messiah would come. Things were not going well for the Jewish people. They were under the rule of Roman Empire. They had no independence of their own. They had no freedom of their own. Why didn't the religious leaders go to see Jesus? The, the Jewish religious leaders that Herod consulted were the brightest and the best that the Jews had, the, the, the best minds of the day. They were professional students of the Torah. When, when Herod asked where the Messiah was born, they immediately knew the answer. They knew exactly where. They didn't have to look it up. They didn't have to Google it. They knew. They also knew a couple other things about the Messiah. You know what they knew? They knew 
that the Messiah would be a Jew. They knew that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. They knew that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. They knew that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And they knew that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So if they knew all of this, why didn't they go? It was only six miles away, remember? A couple hours you'd be there. If they knew that the Messiah was being born only six miles away, why didn't they go and check it out themselves? Were they too busy? Were they too distracted? Were they, were they not interested? Did they have too many other things going on in their lives? Had they become indifferent about the things of God? Had they become too familiar with the things of God? The religious people in the room knew that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, but they did nothing with what they knew. Hey, religious people in the room, if you call yourself a religious person, listen, God is doing something new. God is doing something today. Are you looking for what God is doing? Are you going to where Jesus is? Are you staying where you are? If you stay where you are, nothing in your life will change. If Jesus is just a theory to me, he will not affect me personally. That's a fill in the blank if you want to follow along in your outline. If Jesus is just a theory to me, he will not affect me personally. It's too easy to fall in the trap of saying, yeah, you know, I'm Catholic, I'm Baptist, I'm Lutheran, I'm whatever, I'm nothing, doesn't matter. It's too easy to claim church attendance and say, well, I go to church all the time, and yet we keep Jesus at a distance. If Jesus is just a theory to me, he will not affect me personally. Keep reading, verse 7. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. See, Herod knew what was going on. Herod knew these guys. Herod knew that these were the kingmakers. And Herod was jealous for his throne. And he said, what do you mean there's a king that was born in my area? I need to find out where he is. If you read later on in Matthew 2, he sends out soldiers to kill baby boys that are two years and younger because he's trying to eliminate this threat. But in this case, he knows that when a king makers come into town, they, they, there's no one that's going to rule. There's no one that's going to become king without their endorsement. He, along with these wise men, knew that this wasn't just a baby, that this was a king, the long-awaited God-anointed Messiah who would establish the kingdom of God as the king of the world. And the writer Matthew writes all this because it's his intent to tell the world that Jesus is king, a Messiah for all nations, not just for Jews, for the world. 
And just to make sure that nobody misses it, God creates this faith. I don't know what size of faith, but he creates this faith inside these wise men that lead them to connect the dots. The most famous kingmakers in all of history now come into this area. And verse 9 says, after this interview, the wise men went their way and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. I love these words right here. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. Hmm. All of these details that Matthew is presenting in his, in his message, he's telling us that Jesus is king. The kingmakers are coming. And if the Jews aren't going to pay attention, if the Jews aren't going to acknowledge it, then God is going to drag a bunch of wise men from Persia to acknowledge the fact that Jesus is king. In verse 11, we read, they entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Can you imagine what is going through their minds as they enter this room, the one they have looked for, the Messiah, God's son, God's king, the wise men are right in the middle of all that God is doing and they realize it, that this is not normal, that this is supernatural, that this isn't just a baby. We are seeing we are hearing, we are feeling the king. And they're a part of it. They're a part of all that God is doing. These educated, influential, intelligent wise men fall on their face because he's not just a baby. He's king of the world. Problem is, many of us never acknowledge that Jesus is king. So often we live our lives and we, we think that Jesus is here to, to help us, to help us accomplish our agenda. But Jesus isn't our helper. Jesus is king. He deserves my worship. He deserves my life. Nothing less. The Apostle Paul writes, God elevated him to the place of highest honor. And gave him the name that is above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus is Lord, King. So when will you and I acknowledge that? See, there's a couple of things that we need to do. Some of us, some of us today need to take the first step and get right with God. The Apostle Paul said that we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus. This is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. He also said that if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Some of us need to put our faith in Jesus as King. We need to get right with God. But there are some of us who we've already put our faith in Jesus, but we've never surrendered our life to him as king. See, today, if I acknowledge Jesus as king in my life, what I pursue in my life should change. Too many of us have only made Jesus an add-on into our life, not a priority. And he's saying, I'm king. If he's king, 
then he, becomes, he needs to become a priority in your life and in my life. If I acknowledge Jesus as king in my life, what needs to change is how I live my life should change. My behavior, my, my lifestyle, too many of us aren't living a life that's any different from anyone else. It's because we're not following, we're not obeying. If you're still the same, friend, listen to me. If you're still the same, you haven't acknowledged Jesus as king. The narrative wraps off with this in verse 12. God warned the wise men in a dream not to go back to Herod. So they returned to their own country by a, what's that word? Different way. Just say that word with me. Different. I, I know what this means in grammar, and I know what this whole phrase, grammatical phrase, is talking about. It was a different route. It was a different road. It was a different way. I, I understand that. But I like to say that the wise men returned home different. Because of what they've experienced, because of what they've seen, because of what they have been a part of, they returned home different. They not only knew about it, they not only saw it, they responded to it. They, they were changed by it. And in their experience, I think we see what God promises in Jeremiah 29. God says, when you come looking for me, you'll find me. When you get serious about finding me and want it more than anything else, I'll make sure you won't be disappointed. See, responding is the key. And that's my question to you, to us today. Are you responding to God? Are you responding to what God is saying to you? Are you responding to what God is showing you? In this season, too many of us, we know the Christmas story. We, we are moved by the beauty and the emotion and the nostalgia. But all of this is meaningless if we remain unresponsive. If we do not let it impact our life, change our life, what a tragedy to exchange cards and, and gifts and decorate trees and, and go to parties and sing carols, and even go to a church service like this if we're never really experiencing what God is wanting to do in our lives. It's not enough just to hear about it. It's not enough just to see it. It's my response. It's your response that makes the difference. So maybe God, in all of this today, maybe God in your life this week, this month, this year, maybe, maybe God is speaking to you. Friends, if, if I don't respond, if you don't respond, then I miss out on what God wants to do in my life. Responding is the key. Are you responding to God? Are you responding to what God is saying to you? Are you responding to what God is showing you? If you don't respond to what God is saying or what God is showing, then you will miss out on what God wants to do in your life. 
But if you respond, if you respond to God, you will experience all of what God is doing. You will not be disappointed. Your life will be changed. Today is your day. I hope you respond to God. Would you bow your heads with me?